listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and Hollyhock God, McGill. What a bunch of insanity this is. This is episode 156, recorded on the 14th of July, 2023. McGill, you got something right off the top to, to share with us. Yeah, I thought uh, I'd follow up a previous discussion I had where I mentioned this game, Dust Runner. It's that Mad Max card and dice solo card game uh, from thegamecrafter.com. And we were just talking about how we love the sort of 16-bit color scheme design. And a lot of the mechanics looked really cool, like how you could build your car with modular cards of different parts of the car. So I went ahead and ordered Dust Runner, and I have it here with me, but I have yet to play it because when I ordered it, on a whim, I also ordered another solo uh, tin box card game, dice game from the Game Crafter, and it's called Doom Machine. And so when my order arrived, I opened the box, and inside were my two card games, and Doom Machine was on top. And I was like, well, let's give it a shot. And I played it and immediately got hooked. And I've been playing it for the past couple of days, trying to get good at it. I think I've won maybe three or four times, but I've probably played like 20 times. So it is reasonably challenging, but not undefeatable. And it just makes the victory that much more sweet. And uh, so I thought I'd just talk a little bit about Doom Machine because this thing's cool. See, So here, let me send you a couple links. Ah, uh, Okay. So what's uh what what are we dealing with here? It looks like some sort of uh doom machine, you might say. <laughs> yeah. Uh aside from a couple of tracker cards, all the cards in Doom Machine are pieces of the giant doom machine that grows and changes as you play the game and gets harder and harder to defeat. There are two tracking cards. One is the player tracking card that tracks your health and then things like shields and abilities that you have. And then the other tracking card uh, counts up the sentience and power of the Doom Machine. And the way this game works, uh, there's a a deck in the middle with uh, 10 different cards in it, each of them representing a part of the Doom Machine. And the bottommost card is always the Doom Core. And your objective is to survive until the Doom Core appears and then defeat the Doom Core. Meanwhile, the Doom Machine can win by reducing the player's health to zero, and the mechanics are really cool. You can see in that photo I posted of like the, the game as it's set up, you can see the player tracking card is at the bottom, the Doom Machine tracking card is to the right of the deck, and then there are three different parts of the machine, and each of them has a yellow die. The yellow die represents that part's health. And you can see that the yellow die is sitting on a track with like multiple spaces. Each turn, the die progresses down that track and the little icons on those spaces activate different abilities of the Doom Machine, usually dealing damage to the player. But there's some neat other ones, you know, gaining power, gaining sentience, dealing damage equal to the power or the sentience or both, uh, healing itself, healing adjacent cards, Uh, Some of them have abilities that when that component part is defeated, it has a ripple effect, so it deals damage to adjacent cards or things like that. And the way that the player defeats these, these machine part cards is by rolling the black player dice 
and on each component part you can see in a little yellow box there are two dice and so those are different combinations of dice that you need to tick down the health of those respective machine parts so the, on your turn you roll your black dice you look at the different component parts that are out you track you like assign your dice to different parts to deal damage to those parts when you destroy like when you bring uh, a component parts health points down to zero that card goes away and its dice is added to your pool so your pool expands the more machine parts you defeat on top of all this the player has some abilities you can assign your dice to four different shield slots so that you can uh, stave off hit point damage dealt by the different components uh, you can also there are three slots for dice where if you place a die there you can raise it or raise or lower the value by one point so you can use this to fine-tune the different combos to take out the machine component part cards and then there are also three slots for re-rolling dice so you re-roll the dice and put them down on those slots and only after you've done all those different utilities can you then start assigning your dice to shields or dealing damage to the different component part cards and uh, so yeah you roll your dice use your utilities assign your shields assign your damage tick down the component part health points and then the machine gets a turn where we move those dice on the different parts down their tracks abilities happen damage is dealt towards you which you can deflect with your shields and after all that's done you move all the component parts over and add a new part from the deck you put a yellow die on there assigned to that part's starting health points and the turn resumes anew and your objective is to defeat cards uh, add their dice to your pool and survive until the final card the doom core appears and then you gotta kill the doom core and if you do you've won the game average game lasts about 20 to 30 minutes sometimes you get defeated really quickly um, like I said I haven't won tons of times but I have won and I really just love the gameplay loop it's such a cool form of solitaire like it's basically just a series of dice challenges a card comes up and you have to roll your dice in the hope that you can match the dice on that card uh, but it's just really satisfying really fun solo game and I got hooked very quickly so I haven't even touched Dust Runner yet I, I intend to soon but for now I'm just really into Doom Machine which is uh, again you can get it at thegamecrafter.com and it is designed by Nathan Mounier or maybe it's Mounier but Nathan Mounier uh, Doom Machine like big recommendation for me I have no regrets about buying this I, I love it hell yeah man I'm excited to hear about that other one yeah I'm, I'm stoked to get into Dust Runner as well and uh, again like big recommendation for these game crafter tin box games because the package is perfect like I love how small this is this is smaller than my smartphone uh, so really easy to like just toss in your bag or your backpack and a uh, great way to kill time if you don't want to like be on your phone or something if you have like if you're waiting for your buddy at a restaurant you can just pop this out and play it for a little bit and it cleans up really easily too so love it what about you Tom what you got 
Oh, what have I got? Uh, not too much. I mean, I've just got uh, the continuation of my Coyote's Aegis D and D campaign, picking up where we left off. Actually, where we left off, um, we had just done a session that ended up sort of like closing early, and I was okay with that because it gave us more time to talk about your thing because it was kind of a big topic, but. Um, looking over the notes this time, I'm like, oh man, maybe I should have kept going then because actually, well, I mean, you'll see, but, but basically what happens is that then, um, the next time we tried to play that also ended up like ending really early too. So I could have just done two of those early ending episodes had I had more foresight for it, but hmm. I didn't. Uh, and so instead we're just going to get a tiny episode and then a, pro a proper full episode, um, in today's episode. Episode. But apart from that, I mean, I don't know. I've, uh, I've had my birthday and stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm interested birthday. to talk about Nobilis. Um, we, just before the podcast, I have been asking you, so I have met somebody who made a game called The Gates, and it's particularly what's neat about it is that The Gates is entirely accessible in your browser. It's uh, d-gates.weebly.com, and all the rules are just up there for free. Um, and uh, it is similar... So, so one of the things is that talking to the person, they had mentioned that they had played Nobilis and that Nobilis had inspired uh, some of the things for uh, this game, The Gates. Although I'll also say uh, in the resources at the end of the, uh, the, the pay, uh, on the last page, um, we have uh, Nobilis is listed as a resource, but so is City of Mist which I think speaks to something it speaks to something that you said before, which is that like I think you drew a comparison to City of Mist in the way that the powers of the noblest are kind of spelled out in like like it's a similar thing of like you say things, you phrase things in terms of like I always this or I this about my character, you know, like, that sort of connection um and so the thing is the gates is much easier to read than noblest because it's not 300 pages it's um a few web pages i have read through it although i would like to uh i i wasn't really planning to do it for this episode so i i don't i'm not fully uh prepared to do it right now we can talk about it more in the future certainly but even at a glance i have to uh, I have to say, it's great that this is laid out in a way that conveys the rules. <laughs> Just looking at uh, the gate's overview, it's so much more clear about like what is what. There's a glossary right on the homepage. Uh, so much more easy to understand already than Nobilis. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I, I find that it's still very flowery in the way it's written, and it's similar in that, but, like, um, there's less of it. So I would say that it's easier to, it's, it's easier to digest. Um, like, the, the whole intro page is all done in that same narrative sort of, like, uh, 
you know, uh, that's when you end up at the crossroads. Perhaps it is a crossroads while you dream, a place that has never existed and never will. Perhaps you end up at a crossroads in your neighborhood, asphalt and stop signs limbed by the moon's glow. Like, it's all done in that same way where it's not like, this is how you play the gates. It instead is like, you imagine that you are this and this is happening to you. And then that is the basis from which it sort of explains the rules but it's funny because what i learned from the comparison of the two games and getting into the gates was like what i really feel or what i worry about is that with nobilis we're kind of like missing the forest for the trees is like one thing that really came across the gates is like use of the use of like the mechanical rules is not a consistent part of the game or like it doesn't have to be um it is much more of a collaborative storytelling game much of the time with the exception of like and and for nobilis i think this stands out to me because the rules that are provided in the third edition the mechanical ones, like, there is very little ruling on how the mechanics of, uh, I don't, like, so there's the idea of miraculous actions, but, like, there's this idea that you get one mundane action and one miraculous action, and a mundane action is just, like, anything that you could do, and a miraculous action is, like, anything that would take, like, miraculous power to do. And, like, the thing is, that, that implies, like, there's, there's so much that you could rule out about mundane actions there that you don't. And I think that it's very much a thing of, like, most of the time, it, it reminded me of Burning Wheel, honestly. The fact that Burning Wheel has those different layers of combat, and I think what we discovered was, like, most people online in playthroughs and whatnot were only doing the more narrative side of it and most people were not doing the really granular combat mechanics even though that those were on offer from the game i think i think similarly um in nobilis and in the gates it's like like the gates the thing that's notable about it is that the gates is not like necessarily diceless it has a stipulation where like at a certain point, if you don't know narratively what to do, you can use, like, a camera. I, I think it says something like a divining tool or something. It's basically anything that can, like, yeah, a divination tool. So you can use uh, tarot cards, runes, dice, etc. But anything that lets you sort of, like, randomize a result. Um, and that is, like, but that is truly the last like the the last measure that you would go to if you really don't know whether or not the character beats this challenge because first and foremost you are supposed to be determining that narrative just through like how the characters are defined and what it fits the narrative for them to do um i created a noblest character and i feel like it helped me to understand certainly there is a way that you can play nobilis wherein that that or at least as i understood it 
where you have your noble and you have your abilities and you have your sort of rules of your noble there there are things that are true of you no matter what in every circumstance they you tend to phrase them in things like i can never or i am always or things like that again similar to uh what we're talking about with city of mist but um like i would never as long as i am like like Say I am being challenged by the Hollyhock God to do some specific thing. Another thing that actually really helped me was understanding the projects rules in uh, Noblest 3rd Edition. Did you, did you look into those? I don't think I got to them, no. So it's basically the idea of like, and and you set out a couple of these as like personal projects at the start of the game, but it's like you design your objectives for the story. And the ones that they give in the book as examples are really crazy. They're like how I became a god, how I destroyed the gates of the heavens, how I um, ate an entire planet. Like they're they're really wild things that like, necessitate a real sort of uh drama to get to them but the hollyhock god would then you know ask me how i achieve those objectives and the more crazy miraculous things i try to do to get to those objectives the more miracle points it's going to cost me and the most surefire way i found to regenerate miracle points is to simply play to the rules of my character such that the rules define my character in a way that generates more miracle points for me. So, um, I'm, for example, my character who is based on the concept of infestation right. has an, aff has an affliction that is my presence is always despised. But if I manifest that affliction through play, that can actually net me more miracle points. And so uh -huh. basically I could spend miracle points to do something insane and say like an entire swarm of locusts covers like an entire city or something like that. Um, but then it's like, oh, well, now I've got like no miracle points to do anything else in the story. Now I have to do something that nets me more miracle points um, or else I'm going to be stuck basically doing mundane things until something in the story gives me miracle points. One of the things that gives you miracle points is like, I think, facing a certain level of challenge, um, like anytime you're up against... Uh, a challenge of a certain level of seriousness it's like you automatically get miracle points to sort of deal with it um but again the thing that i found would be or at least again this is all theoretical because i didn't play it but like from my understanding the most surefire way to keep up uh, and, and again this is assuming that your group needs that sort of action economy to measure things rather than just a collaborative storytelling. It's very possible that with the rules sort of created around your character and the story that you guys have in mind, you guys just like collaboratively tell that story in a way that's satisfying. That's what I was finding um, in my research uh, since our last episode. I found a website, a wiki dot, uh, noblis-aleph.wiki.com, 
And this has a lot of different resources, including several examples of play that are transcripts, similar to the transcripts that you have for Coyote's Aegis. And in reading through those transcripts, I was realizing that like while there is some spending of miracle points and use you know using these powers and stuff uh for the most part it is just total collaborative storytelling um i had to do a, a control f like a find through the page to find examples of people actually using their points and did, what i'm saying about the miracle points because i don't honestly know for sure does that seem to hold up about the economy of it where it's like you spend some, but then you get some by playing your character, basically. Yes. Like it, to, um, to me, it's basically just a reinforcement of, like, um, okay, if if the collaborative thing is getting too freeform, there is a way that you can measure your characters and see how well they are fitting their roles in the story. But yeah, I, I find that what you're saying is true, and, and you can sort of create a, an engine to generate those miracle points, but... Really, I'm also finding that they almost seem, at least to these players, uh, incidental. You know, they're just sort of like a technicality, and the main draw of this is just creating an elaborate story together, uh, together within the confines of this set of lore, this mythos, as it were. Yeah, um, I, I think, and that's what I when I said uh, missing the forest for the trees, it's like the fact is the noblest third edition book is like full of crazy stuff, like karma worms and the locust court and all this stuff. And like the, the rules I think are just like such a small part of it by comparison. Um, and I think that like a real, a proper examination of noblest like involves saying like, well, what did you think of the karma worms? What do you think of all that nonsense? Was there any of that that you really liked or that really stood out to you? Wait, you mean you're asking me? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, specifically about the karma worms? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be that. It could just be any cool lore thing that's introduced in the book. I was really interested in the concept of treasures. <laughs> oh, really? yeah thought that was interesting but like i don't know it, i i feel kind of like a broken record talking about this particular kind of rpg I was saying it all the time with wisher they're just fatalist as well but it just becomes kind of dizzying for me i guess i'm the kind of person who really needs to see some concrete examples of this kind of game being played to fully grasp it because as you've said like the rules here are kind of hidden behind a lot of flowery language and i get the sense that like the the fun of noblesse is just that you're playing these sort of you know god-like characters we've made the comparison to sandman like it does feel like you're playing these I keep making the comparison to scion which i also scion yeah I get the feeling that the game used to be more like Scion and it is less like Scion now, but but like the fun of it is just that you are like that. Um like I I was thinking of, you know, speaking of Sandman. Did you Although I, actually you you mentioned treasures and now that I think of it, like treasures also reminds me of the birthright system in Scion. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, the treasures sorry, remind saying? me a bit of uh it's been a long time since I looked at Scion, but I remember you saying that you could have, your character could have, 
like something you know a relic of the god that they represent as a part of a thing that they have you know like a revolver but the hammer is a piece of mjolnir right yeah that's the classic one they use that's the guy they have on the cover of the first book well Uh, i find the treasures in noblest can also act like that like here on that wiki i found or through that wiki rather i found a couple of examples of treasure from jenna moran and they are just wacky as heck fix gum this treasure is chewing gum you chew it then you stick it on technology this fixes any problems the technology might be having. It's not as easy as it sounds, since you have to stick it in the right place, or you're just basically making the technology sticky. And there are different levels which have different abilities. Level 3, you activate this magic, letting you use fix gum to fix something. The actual fixing part is just a mundane action, so it won't do much good if a miracle gets in the way, but it is a strong mundane action, so it can fix even intractable issues, get totaled cars running again for a short time, and substitute for control rods in a nuclear reactor going critical. Uh, Versus, like, a level 7, you fetch the fix gum from anywhere. Level four, you can fetch your packs of fi- pack of fixed gum from anywhere nearby, so I guess it can sort of teleport to you. find that stuff pretty interesting. And then the other one here is Laser Rabbit, a floppy stuffed rabbit that Hell is secretly yeah. a cybernetic warrior with internal hydraulics and a hidden laser eye, an astute computer brain. Like, the more I read and the more I comprehend, or at least think I comprehend of Noblest, the more I get the sense that, like, the... It's this is sort of like, uh, you know, how Rifts is like a, a <laughs> how do I put this politely? <laughs> uh, Rifts is like a 13 year old boy's power fantasy. Uh, Nobilis is like a Sandman, a Neil Gaiman fan's power fantasy. Right. What if we could play as the endless and have, you know, and just be able to do anything, be able to it, even the lowest level of our abilities is an insane, like, biblical-level miracle to the mundane Earthling. What if that was the setting, and what if we were that type of character? And then I read the samples of play, and it's just sort of that. And then once in a while, somebody's like, I I drink the extremely strong gin. I want to use this power that says I won't get drunk. The hollyhock god goes, all right, you do that. But for the most part, it's just sort of playing around in that sandbox, and... It feels like looking at those treasures by Jenna Moran herself, it just kind of feels like the point is there are no limits. You can do anything if you want. I don't know. Is that the sense that you get? Yeah, I I, I would say so. I am uh, trying to... I am presently scrolling through the Nobilis uh, rules to get all situated so I'm able to cover it all right. Um... Specifically, the avatar creation rules, which, like, um, this is another thing, is that, like, your character creation is very much, like, uh, or at least optionally here, uh, you create it through, like, a diagram that you complete by filling out a questionnaire, but not even quite that, because there are steps in this questionnaire where you are encouraged to just, like, kind of throw ideas out there like the part that i find um like like the there's examples of building a character all throughout the 
this this chapter but the thing about it is that um i wish that it showed me an entire view of the diagram and how that diagram looks as it is being filled out because it only really shows little bullet points and some of those bullet points are prescribed for you by the questionnaire it's like okay you have pick this and therefore you put this bullet point in your diagram but then there are other times so the one that jumps out at me is at one point the example character is uh looking at their list of possible estates and uh it says i start thinking about sunsets and that draws me to reject both the options above and go for the beautiful side of the world instead that means strengthening the shadow of one of my keys i don't know how to work that in the shadow of the lotus flower but it does fit well in the shadow of the wild oats i draw a line between my estate and that shadow and write the first bullet point in that shadow the sunset is beautiful there's nothing to indicate that that is a step in the making of the character like i ended up coming across a moment like this in my character creation but it was such a a notable thing for me of like okay that worked out for me is like i also had a little like phrase that sort of came to me and sort of worked to define the character but there's no like it doesn't explain how you're supposed to come to that. And really the way you're supposed to come to it is just through like free brainstorming, which is like not a step in character creation is the thing is like, it's, it's kind of like it's telling you how to fill out your character sheet. And then it says, Oh, and if you have just like an errant thought that strikes you as cool, <laughs> you can write that on your character sheet as well. And it's like, <laughs> what what kind of Aaron thought it's just like ah just any I like, wish like, that it just said that though like <laughs> yeah kind of like like you know it does have into the example it's like the person just puts in their diagram the sunset is beautiful and it's like well that wasn't I like that is a sort of answer to one of the things that is presented but it is not like like if I were to take it more literally, I would have said the estate is, I would have written in from the beautiful side of the world and then said uh, something you can point to or something you can, yeah, something you can point to. But instead, they sur summarize it by just like saying something. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's... Uh, like they they come to the idea that their estate is hanging on but that is separate from the idea that sunset is beautiful that's just something that they've put in their character creation um you know what do you want to uh i f i figure we're basically just doing noblest on the first half of the episode here yeah but so the avatar you've got a diagram um it's five circles on a blank page you've got uh two circles on one side two circles on the other and a circle in the middle and the circle in the middle is your estate the circles on either side on one side the circles are labeled heart 
and on one side the circles are labeled shadow. You with me so far? Uh, I'm getting this. Yeah, I see it. So Everett Dangler, the swarm inside, for his uh, for his heart and his shadow, um, I have to choose two keys. Um, each key has a heart and a shadow, and so I pick my keys, and that determines what my hearts and my shadows are going to be. So, for my, uh, two keys, I picked key number 11, which is, uh, the key of, uh, uh it's Wild Rose, key 11, the key of something different. Something about you isn't normal. Something doesn't belong. Do you have a love-hate relationship with the people around you, or are you desperate to belong? The heart of this key is named My Nature. You are different. You are not, able, you are not normal. The top bullet point in the heart will summarize who you are compared to others, such as an alien, a freak, an outsider, or Superman. Here's, a, here's an important thing, is that when it does a list, it does not mean choose from that list, because the first list of examples it provides in keys, I found this was helpful to make it clear that they are not, like, exclusive lists. Uh, the first list under key number one um, says, uh, summarize your role here, such as prophet, healer, or turns people into birds. Those are not three exclusive choices. You are not limited <laughs> to either being a prophet, healer, or someone who turns people into birds. Um, it, it's just like you choose one of those or something similar based on it. So um, the heart of my key, I've got uh, my, my nature, and then the shadow of this key is called my struggles. The stronger the shadow... The more you want to fit in, the harder you work to find yourself a place in the world. Right? The following two phrases in the shadow circle. So these ones, I just, it tells me what to write in. I don't have to come up with anything for the struggles. I just write self-doubt and trying to fit in. So that's on the right side under my struggles, under shadow for the first key, key 11. Then um, I pick key 13. The mimulus, key of something restless, you can't settle down. You're restless, rootless, unable to stay at home, or possibly unable to find a home at all. The heart of this key is named my path. It's what you travel, it's what drives you to travel, to live in the moment, to seek out and interact with new and interesting things. The top bullet point in the heart will summarize who you are when you wander, such as a vagabond, a wandering hero, or I walk the earth. The shadow of this key is named Why It Feels Empty. The stronger the shadow, the greater the toll the road takes on you. The harder you cling to the permanent things and attachments you have. Write the following two phrases in the shadow circle. Self-doubt and the things I've left behind. And what's interesting is now I've got two, two shadow boxes that both say self-doubt in them. So already there's a certain like theme that's coming out in my character through the way that I am like answering this sort of weird questionnaire. Do you see how that makes sense? Yeah. He seems to have some real self-esteem, uh, self-esteem issues. Yeah. So, um, self-doubt and he's despised. 
Yeah, so in my nature, I put um, an invader, an outsider. And also as just an idea, I put no places sacred. Um, for my path, I put drifter. I get in places. Uh, couch surfer, I also included. Um, you get some neat things out of this questionnaire as well. Once you've, uh, depending on the keys you've chosen, you do things like you get your next question is, uh, more than anything else you are. And there are different answers that you can choose that go with different, um, keys. And for example, more than anything else you are, the options are something cool in love with something epic inhuman and powerful or just plain weird both of my keys fall into just plain weird and so um when that happens you end up uh doing a new bullet point that breaks off of that uh um if you happen to pick a row that has both your keys in it, draw or shift your attention to a new circle linked to the heart of both keys. Write a single bullet point in that new circle to reflect this. That's a bit vague for me, but I did it. Um, I got the just plain weird, and the question is, what am I? I am a living swarm. Uh, the examples they provide are Dimmy is a living song. Taki, Takari Risu is an anime character. Haru is a rat. Merrick is a nanomachine swarm. So, you know, I fit right in there as a, <laughs> as a living swarm. Yep. Um, one thing that's funny is that they have sidebars about um, if you pick certain keys, you have the option to... And it should be said, you can always go against what your key is telling you what that means is that instead of adding a bullet point to your heart, um, you add a bullet point to one of your shadows instead. So if, uh, as, uh, like, like say I wanted my character to be an animal, that uh, would strengthen the heart of wild oats, gorse, water lily, or oak, but I didn't choose any of those. So then instead, being an animal would add a bullet point to one of my shadow things, which would go in that area of, like, self-doubt, um, uh, why, why it feels empty, that sort of thing. Um, so then... Uh, another neat thing that I got is I have, um, uh, there's origins for my origin. I picked couch surfer, um, right. You get contacts at one point and your contact is entirely unique to one of the, uh, like, like each key has its own contacts. Uh, I chose for the wild rose. My contact is aliens, potentially. You have a coterie of the strangest sort, a hodgepodge of freaks, aliens, degenerates, mysteries, and possibly even creatures from outside the universe entirely. <laughs> uh, so, I alien have... bugs? Yeah, I, I got alien bugs. I called it the Zizik Swarm. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's that's like... Basically, my my diagram comes down to my estate is infestation. My nature 
uh, is I'm an invader, an outsider, and no place is sacred. I'm also just plain weird. I'm a living swarm. Um, my path is I'm a drifter. I get in places. I was a couch surfer. That's my origins. And uh, my contact is aliens. This is a swarm. This is my like struggles. <laughs> this is like wild rap lyrics. <laughs> my my sh- well, my name is Everett Dangler, and I'm here to say. I can be a swarm in a funky way. <laughs> my um, path is this and my heart is that. <laughs> my struggles is self-doubt, trying to fit in. Why it feels empty, self-doubt, the things I've left behind. <laughs> um, so, all of this to say, like, that was just filling out some ideas. My thing that I had similar to the sunset is beautiful is at one point I was struck by just like an idea, a phrase that I like that I added in, which was for every golden gate, there is a crooked little path. And there's very much um, the recurring themes here is like uh, I get in places and things like that. As I, as I start to create my character, further beyond this this sort of questionnaire um i get to fill out like my bonds and my afflictions and that starts to feed even more into that um but one thing you start out with is uh i think they're actually like based on just who you were before you even became a noble but um like because the examples that jenna moran gives are uh the skills and passions that jenna moran herself actually has uh so for skills they put like writing and things like that (laughs) and for passions they put things like role-playing games um for me i picked uh skills i picked the skill of infiltration at two uh the skill of persuasion at two i picked the passion of find a place to stay at three and i picked the passion of find something to eat at one And then I created a couple of personal projects for myself, which I did not go as grandiose as the ones that they provide in the uh, rule book. My personal projects were, uh, so you phrase them as like stories. And my two personal projects are how I spread myself to every continent and how I infested an entire city. So, Throughout play, I would be trying to uh, tell those stories as we tell the stories. We may have, like, my party may have a, a larger project that we are attempting to do. One of the uh, one of the ones that I saw online, one of the actual plays, uh, had a fairly compelling opening gambit from the Hollyhock God. It was the Hollyhock God has the nobles, he gathers them, and he just says to them, um, so your first task is to take 100 lives. It's an appropriate sacrifice for an imperator and and your new group of nobles. And like immediately there's the question there of like, are you okay with that? Are you going to try and get out of taking 100 lives or like, you know, that sort of thing. And so that might be our larger group project is this idea of like, how do we get away with sacrificing a hundred people for our Imperator? But at the same time, I may be trying to pursue my objective of like trying to spread myself to every continent. Huh? Okay. Um, I have, uh, I, I went sort of min maxed for my basic stats. 
I uh, have zero in aspect and zero in treasure, but I got four in domain and four in persona. So really, I'm going very strong in like the sort of theoretical power of my of my noble. I am not. I don't have any particular birthrights, and I'm not someone who physically does incredible heroic feats but as a living swarm i can like conjure up the powers of infestation uh quite readily and very effectively there are a number of things that i can do with my infestation powers that aren't even going to cost me miracle points because they're so trivial for me to do with my level of power um so i got four in domain and four in persona and then uh, for my, I had some character points left over and I didn't want to spend them on any of the gifts. So instead, I just bought myself um, an extra miracle point in every category. So instead of having five miracle points in every category, I have six. Um, I got to pick my estate properties. And so my estate properties are infestation knows no boundaries at two. Infestation makes the skin crawl at 1. Infestation can destroy from within at 2. Infestation consumes all it can at 2. And all of these things, like when I say at 2, it's basically you have a certain number of points you can spend, and I think they're all measured on a scale of like up to 5. But generally, I am just trying to like balance out like these truths about my estate that I don't feel that like any one of them is substantially more important than the other. So mine tend to balance out at a level of like two or one. And I sort of spread them out rather than having like one really critical thing that's like five. And then like one thing that's like a couple things that are one or one thing at two. Um... Finally, I got my bonds and my afflictions, and again, these are going to be important because they allow me to regain miracle points by sort of playing my character. Um, so my bonds are, uh, I cannot be dispersed at a level 2 bond, I cannot be contained at a level 2 bond, I cannot be kept out at a level 2 bond, I must consume all I can at a level 2 bond, and I have two afflictions. One is my presence is always despised. And another is I am a swarm of pests. And so one way this might manifest is I might be trying to tell the story of how I infested an entire city. But then I may even come to the understanding with the Hollyhock God that... You know, I am trying to infest this city, but naturally there is going to be a force that rises up to try and stop me. Some new, uh, some new exterminator team is gonna develop some way that they're gonna like they're gonna figure out a way to to hit to hurt my swarm or something, and I'm gonna need to learn to adapt to that, and I gotta get used to that. Because everybody hates—nobody likes the infestation. It's an inherent part of my being that people don't want me around. And so one of my inherent challenges is going to be getting around while facing inherent adversity because of what I am. But as long as I play that up, I keep getting the miracle points to allow me to do the things that will allow me to eventually infest my city 
tell that story. I like uh, what you've done with the character there, because my immediate thought as you were talking about, you know, how you're ostracized and, and despised, I was like, oh, what a lonely existence. But then I thought, no, it's not. He's got like millions of bugs. <laughs> He's got loads, yeah. lo- a whole swarm of, of bonds and anchors, as it were. It's a party of me. Cool. This has really helped clarify a lot. I gotta say. Interesting. I wasn't sure if I was just, uh, you know, telling my story and uh, wasn't sure uh, what was going on. I mean, it's still kind of a puzzle to me how this all fits together into a game, but you explaining character creation in that way, like... Just the questions that the game is asking and the lists that you're picking from at least impart to me sort of the general tone of the game that has to be sort of adopted when you play it, I guess is a a way to talk about. Like this obviously has a very specific kind of voice uh, and that specificity is why I keep coming back to examples like Neil Gaiman and stuff like that. And so just you walking through the character creation process really sort of imparts to me like this is the kind of tone that has to be struck uh, to play this game, at least in the way that it seems to be intended to be played. Um, But Tom, I got to ask, would you run a game of Nobilis? I would want to play with someone else running first. Yeah. And like there are there are a few games that that is the case for. Uh Thirsty Sword Lesbians is a game that like I do not like as much as I want to play it. I feel like I want to play with somebody else who has a bit more experience with the right. system first so I get an idea. Again, it's the same thing you're talking about of like the tone that you're trying to strike with the game and like what kind of game it is. Um I think that I think that the Gates has a similar thing, and I think I would say the same thing about the Gates, but I might be more interested in playing the Gates a little more readily. Um, well, like I said, even that, at a glance, it feels more accessible anyway. Yeah, definitely. And um, But what the Gates is funny because, um, you know, instead of doing this whole thing where I pick keys and stuff, the Gates, you create your character based on, like, your ancestry and, like, past lives and things like that. Like, I could be someone who represents, like, um, all the... Man, the, my idea for a character for the Gates was, like, um, you you have an upper soul and an under soul, and one of them represents, like, your the your, your sort of your past lives, and I, I hope I'm getting that right, and one of them represents your ancestry and my idea was for a character who like the ancestry side is like he is like every every fuck up like bad offshoot of the family tree in my ancestry basically all all the addicts and all the all the suicides and everything like that that's that's the ancestry that's my undersoul or my upper soul whatever it is and then my one that's like past lives and stuff is just like there's been a bat, there's been a bug, there's been a bug, there's uh, been a bug, and it's just a bunch of crazy uh, bug and bat powers and stuff like that. <laughs> you got to sum up the power of death. It's crazy. 
but it doesn't seem to have gripped you the way Essence 20 did. Well, except that, like, it's funny because Essence 20 gave me all that crunch and I, I really dug into it, but then I played it, like, once and I was like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, a question that I keep coming back to is something like Noblesse. is like, I'm intrigued by the type of people like who's is the target audience for this as i suspect like a very specific kind of person uh who wants the the sandman power fantasy or or what i mean the thing is i feel like if you wanted that crunchier mechanical fantasy then you would go to scion right like, this is much more about telling that story, but doing it in a way that, again, is, like, collaborative and, mm -hmm. you know, not not measured in a game, not measured as a game in the same way that, like, a White Wolf RPG is, which, which would, is what Scion is. Hey, you know what it actually kind of reminds me of? Uh, thinking of, like, the tone it's aiming to strike and the, the kind of scale it's dealing in uh it's kind of got an in a wicked age flavor to it yeah i definitely agree with that yeah all of these things tend to there's a certain vibe that like they all remind me of like tarot cards they all that's a good comparison the whole thing of like getting the keys and the shadows and the hearts and all that like it all just felt like uh it's all games that use tarot cards Well, very interesting, Tom. I do think that, like I said, you know, this helped clarify it. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel like, like, at once I feel like there's not much more that I have to say about Nobilis, but at the same time, I feel like if we dug, there's just like infinite rules and things. Like the the more I look at this this wiki dot of Nobilis, the more I find. You know, here's a whole section on Imperial Miracles, Mortal Rules, Life Paths and Destiny, Hubris, Why and When, Aspect. Don't be fooled into thinking it's just more aspect equals more better. Like, there's there's a lot here. How do you feel about it in the end? Um... Do, do you feel, I don't know. Do you feel like you have more to say on it, or, do, or is this us closing the book, as it were, on Nobilis? I was kind of curious. You had said that you had looked at like transcripts of play and that sort of thing. And I was wondering if you had anything more to say about that. But um, beyond that, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I think... Um, I can read a little bit of the transcript of play here. Um, let me just find a bit that actually has some discussion of the rules, too, so that we can see that in action. Right, that's another thing I was going to say, is that, like, there's a whole thing for miraculous conflict, and that seems to be, like, the most rules-heavy part of the book. But, like, I would generally try to avoid miraculous conflict if I could. Like, I don't, I don't want to get into, like, a miracle-spending contest with somebody else if I can avoid it. I'd rather just come up with the narrative thing that I do and pay the miracle point cost and then, you know, continue the story. 
I get the sense that like the miraculous conflict is more for like literal not not like PvP but like conflict between characters where it's like a, a decision needs to be made between two things that like characters want to do that oppose each other. So uh here, do you want to hear like a a little bit of a a transcript of play that I found? Yeah, sure. The setup here is that all the player characters are at the reading of a will of a deceased god. It's just sort of the basic setup. There's a lot of uh, table setting about which chancel this takes place in, who the imperator is, etc., etc. But that's sort of the scene. So Henry takes a pair of drinks over to his friends, offering one to Emmanuel before realizing he had one already. Well met, brother. It has been some time. Um... Grayson says, now perhaps I should ha head off an altercation between our more excitable brother and the Duchess of having a stick up your ass. Dreams, knock, Dreams is a character. Dreams knocks back a gin and tonic. Uh, Emmanuel grabs the other drink and consumes it. Glass and all. Emmanuel used a level 3 persona miracle to allow him to safely consume the glass. Grayson takes another one and brings the other to the Duchess. Emmanuel turns to his brother Ambition. Dutch is fine. May I say you look lovely in that suit? I don't know whether you've met my brother, Dreams. The Hollyhock God says she demurely brushes a few motes of dust off her dress. Reese, recognizing this as the prelude to hideous, miraculous assault, wraps a restraining arm around her. Please remember he's bereaved, he tells her. Yes, it has, says Emmanuel. Um, so again, like this does read sort of like a Sandman thing, but you see in here there's this like using a level three persona miracle to safely eat an entire glass. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I like that. But and that's exactly like I I like that you know, I th as I understand it, um they don't necessarily even need to spend miracle points to do that if their like persona is high enough or something like that. Right. Like my because I put a lot of points into domain and persona my swarm guy can do a lot of swarm stuff without even having to spend a resource. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, to touch on uh, the gates. Um, so in the gates, you have the undersoul and upper soul power sources. They are different because of where the power is sourced from. Undersoul power comes from underworlds and ancestral past lives, whereas upper soul power comes from upper worlds and past lives that are unrelated to you by your current blood or ancestry. Um, as a general rule, if you have one power for your undersoul form, you cannot have the same power for your upper soul form. This is because the underworld guardians and upper world guardians are in communication, and all power they g give are not gifts to you, but to your communities. The intention is to ensure that the communities have a diverse array of power to support them through hardships, and especially against the onslaught of the Opermus. That's their antagonist in this game. Interesting. Hmm. There really are, like, so many different facets to this. Every time we touch upon a new rule, I'm like, oh, and there's, like, a whole other sort of side thing about all the different ways this rule can be applied. You know, we mentioned, like, miraculous conflict, right? If uh, your friend really doesn't want you to eat that glass, you get into a bit of a slappers-only fight over it. 
Honestly, speaking no. of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, good transition. Do it. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Speaking of slappers only, we're back at Operation Goldeneye. Hey. Um. So we had just hit a total XP of two hundred seventy-eight thousand five hundred seventy-five. When we left off, Gent was sneaking through the enemy camp while invisible to scope out each individual area. Uh. They had just been observing the shrine to what they believe is Isis, the woman in armor who appeared to be some kind of priest at said shrine. Next on the list was the barracks. I said, uh, to to refresh, the locations were the walls that have four guards, the battlements that have four, uh, two guards each, and one alarm brazier each. And should be noted that Jen added a flask of oil to every alarm brazier. Uh, There's a kennel. There's a shrine to Isis. There's a big barracks. There's a kitchen with three staff, one of whom is younger than the others. There's stables, a hill nearby, which is the spot where uh, someone is going off to indulge their insomnium habit occasionally. And then there's Dio's big tent. And uh, Jen says, actually, I'm going to hit the kitchen first. And I say, just a reminder, the guard's attention is generally turned inwards rather than outwards making it fairly easy to avoid detection at the walls and battlements. Meanwhile, Hexakila has created a bunny bomb, and this I thought was pretty uh, topical to the laser rabbit. Um, a taxidermied rabbit with Helio C4 explosive inside and a tiny trigger panel on the bottom. That's what Connor is up to. But Gent, not far from the barracks, is a mess tent with a small adjacent fixture serving as the kitchen. The three cooks inside are clearly very busy, hurrying to and fro. One of them is a bit younger than the other two. The kitchen is clearly off-limits to anyone but the cooks, but the amount of work required to feed such a large deployment has left piles of containers and cooking implements all around. Combined with the preoccupation of the cooks, this means the kitchen provides a great many potential hiding spots. Even Connor could hide under a table here and avoid notice. (laughs) Even Connor. Connor's back in his spying spot, keeping an eye out. Gent uh, hides out and observes kitchen staff interactions. And I say all three cooks appear to be male human drones. Observing them closely, you're able to learn their names from their calling to one another. The youngest is Chu, while the others are Egg and Zim. (laughs) At this point in the evening, they are simultaneously occupied with serving desserts to Lord Dio in his tent and creating hot soup for the guards that will be posted on watch over the cold nighttime. They're audibly frustrated that after all this, they will likely need to scrub dishes and pots long into the night. And Gent rolls a 17 for insight, and Egg makes a racist joke about wishing he could trance instead of sleeping like an elf. No, no. But having his cock shrivel off wouldn't be worth it. And Zim has a chuckle at that. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) So Gent uh, says, I'm going to wait and see if Chu gets left alone. And... uh, uh, so there's not much else to see here. Soup being boiled, cakes and pies being taken to Dio's tent. Nobody really gets left alone in the kitchen, though occasionally one or another will go off elsewhere alone, either carrying desserts to Dio's tent or running errands, such as getting orders as far as how many guards will need soup. So Chu will technically be alone at some point, but he will be on the move. And it's about 10.30 p.m., so Gent goes to the barracks next. The barracks covers an especially large portion of the grounds here, rivaled in size only by the grand tent that you believe houses Lord Dio. 
Based on its size, you estimate it could hold somewhere between 50 and 75 soldiers at a time. Just from the sounds of conversation and movement inside, you can tell that it's currently at roughly half its capacity, if not a little more. Peeping inside, you count 60 beds, as well as 36 individuals within the tent. The bulk of these appear to be drones, unarmed and carrying sheathed swords. A dozen of the humans inside are off-duty guards, while another five appear to be militia like those you saw in the mantle, the ones you fought outside the forward cartography office. You see an armored figure, the knight that Gent saw entering and exiting Dio's tent. This armored human is one of the few figures allowed to enter the larger tent alongside the woman at the shrine and the three kitchen staff. So... Gent uh, asks Alex, or, or Chantel asks Alex uh, what his thoughts are, and I say, you can technically communicate long distance in character using the Sending Stones. And they say, okay, I am thinking I could figure out when dinner is served if we want to try and poison the guards. We could bunny demo the barracks. And Alex says, well, right now the barracks is half full, but will it reliably be that way when the bomb goes off? Also, have we actually verified that Dio is in the big tent? And uh, Jen says, no last location for me to go to. Also, no sighting of the other dude. <clears throat> I say, you haven't got visual conversation confirmation, but the kitchen staff seem to confirm Dio is in the big tent. The remaining areas you haven't scouted are the, are the stables and the big tent. And Alex says, yeah, I suppose Dexter's in the big tent, which is a good reason not to blow it up, I suppose. And Jen says, all right, I'm going to hit up the stables first and then the tent. I say the stables are built entirely of wood, making them likely the sturdiest structure in the entire camp. It's obvious care was taken in their construction, and with the size of Lord Dio's ex escort, one can see why. Twenty-four horses are stabled here, guarded by two militiamen and tended to by a pair of human male drones. To which Chantel says, Hey, sorry, the dogs got hit by a porcupine. I have to help my mom remove them. And I say, Oh wait, no, wait. porcupine! <laughs> Poor Borfarful Kong! And Alex said, oh, puppy tried to make friends with a stabby mouse. Oh, no. <laughs> so wait, did you have to break right there for dog treatment? Yeah, we had to, yeah, we had to uh, break. Um, <laughs> you're looking at some pretty adorable dogs with spikes in his Aww. face. Uh, big, lovable schlub of a dog. He wanted to know what the stabby mouse smelled like, and it smelled like stabs. Um, most of the credit goes to my brother there. So, uh, after that, we got back to playing, and I said, since we've been off for a while, I'm just going to start us off with a quick rundown of all the data you guys have for this op so far for reference. How long... Start location. How long but, had gone by between those two, two sessions? Uh, it was... The 26th of October, 2020, when the dog got hit by spikes. And then I started again uh, the 9th of November, 2020, was when I started this uh, second one. Um, so start location, I said forward cartography office, objectives, Primary, assassinate Lord Dio, given by Francesca, the Draelic soldier. Secondary, capture Spymaster Dexter alive, given by Sir Ram, the Draelic knight. And retrieve purple gemstone sample, given by Rin, tiefling prodigy. 
You have a backpack full of items to assist in your task, including three types of poison, assassin's blood, serpent's venom, and basic poison. Alex chimed in also a bunny bomb and some blackmail. I said the enemy camp will remain for three days. Snowfall expected on the third. There's walls with four guards. The guards' attention is turned inside the camp, making infiltration from without easier. The battlements, four, uh, four battlements, each with two guards for eight total. As above, plus Gent has added oil to the alarm braziers. Uh, enemies at battlement positions have cover from attackers outside the camp. There's the kennel, which has four mastiffs and one drone. There's the shrine, which has a cleric and is to Isis. There's the barracks that has 12 guards, 18 drones, 5 militia, a knight, and 60 beds. There's the kitchen that has 3 cooks named Egg, Zim, and Chu, Chu being the youngest. And there's easy hiding spots in the kitchen. Uh, we had just left off with Gent checking out the stables, after which they voiced their intention to head for Dio's big tent. And uh, there's the hill where the insomnia insomnium attic guard goes to hide from his superiors. Just for good measure, I gave a quick rundown of the backpack's contents, which included 50 feet of rope, a male human militia uniform, a crowbar, grappling hook, manacles and keys, tinderbox, five oil flasks, poisons, and a plus two vicious hand axe. And then I went for a smoke and said, uh, let me know when they're ready to start. And I say, all right, so... Uh, the stables are built entirely of wood, making them likely... Right, I already covered this. This was uh, picking up from last thing. And uh, Gent asks, uh, remind me about the purple purple stone. That was something that naturally occurs, right? Not like something we're trying to steal someone's jewelry. I said, this is more or less correct. It's believed the enemy collects the substance for some un yet undetermined purpose. So it's possible you'll find some samples collected somewhere in the camp. I say, okay, I would like to check any saddlebags in the sables before leaving, if there are any available. And I say, sadly, you find that all of the saddlebags are empty. It takes you some time to go through them all, but it appears that somebody has been careful to empty out its contents in each case. And Gent says, boo. Okay, I will lastly see how I can sneakily listen to the main tent. I say, the size of Lord Dio's tent necessitates the use of large wooden support pillars. Flickering light emanates from within. The tent itself appears to be a heavier canvas than that used for the others around the camp. Three militia stand on guard at the entryway at all times. I have gent roll perception. They get a 25. I say it's difficult, but you are able to make out a number of voices inside, all male. The heavy canvas makes it hard to hear, and the men are not raising their voices, so it's effectively impossible to tell what they're saying. Still, you can safely assume at this point that one of them is Dio, you have enough familiarity with his voice in general, and one of them is likely to be Dexter. And uh, Gent says, all right, I'm not too sure what to do at this point, so I'm going to sneak back to Hex. And I say, you return to Hex, who has crafted a bunny, bunny bomb out of a taxidermied rabbit and a Helio C4 explosive. Connor <laughs> is, is at his sniper position, watching the, the hill. Are those bunny bombs inspired by Full Throttle? You know, that's what I think of every time. Um, I don't know if they were, but definitely that was on my mind whenever he mentioned it. Dun, 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 Hell yeah. Um, so, uh, Gent describes what they saw and putting more oil in the fire urns. I, uh, and I point out that Connor is effectively across the camp from them. 
Gent says, if we wanted distraction, blowing up the stables would be a solid one. And uh, Hex says, no sign of that crystal, huh? It's odd. This doesn't seem like any kind of a mining camp. Could that be what they're dealing in? Some kind of trade? Gems for arms? And Gent says, wasn't able to find too much info, except the kid kitchen helper is unhappy in his position. And uh, Hex says, okay, so maybe we forged the note about the specially requested seasonings. And uh, I said, uh, or, or uh, Gent says, also, Dexter is also in the camp now, so we can nab it. And Hex says, right. We need to figure out his routine a little, maybe. Find the best time. And Gent says, so should I sneak back in just for scheduling? I can also track kitchen stuff. I say, oh, at this point, it's basically the middle of the night, so activity is likely to take a bit of a downturn. And Hex says, why don't you forge a note and gussy up the poison bottle a little and then sneak back in to try to get an idea of the camp movements? Connor can wa overwatch from the hill. Do you think you could conv con convince Chu to stew with our brew? Actually, yeah, it's the middle of the night. An unhappy kitchen hand does not make for a tolerant one of non-humans. And uh, Alex says, let's just have Connor watch the camp from his vantage tomorrow. Try to see if he can spot Dexter moving around. And Jen says, I can definitely attempt to forge a letter. Maybe leave a bottle of poison with it. That way they don't need to see me. That's also a good point. Maybe the plan for day two is to have Connor watch the camp, then try to ambush the addict and gayest him to do our bidding. Jen is able, even able to forge Dexter's hand as they are familiar with it from going through his schedule and notes in the previous infiltration op. And uh, Alex says, we could get him to drop off the poison at the tent and plant a bomb. Jen says, that is actually a great idea. And Hex yawns, how do you get anything done in this weather? So yeah, let's forge a note and send it over to Connor. Let him know the plan and try to sneak back before the sun is up. Jen attempts to forge the note from Dio to kitchen staff and uh, or, or from Dexter's uh, a note from Dexter since they know um, his uh, they know his handwriting and Alex points out also because I don't know if his excellency deigns to lift a pen. So Gent rolls with a plus 16 and gets a 26 to Gent not their best work but to anyone else and a flawless forgery. Jen says, always the perfectionist. And Hex says, all right, let's go meet up with Connor and fill him in. If his spot seems hidden enough, maybe we just camp out with him there. We can alternate watching the camp and resting. Then when the insomnium guy comes out, we can get them the no we can get the numerical advantage on him. Jen says, sounds good. And I say, alternatively, you could use sending stones to call him back to your position. Your position is probably the better one for camping and resting. His is more of a small vantage point. So they call him back. And they're like, tomorrow we move to Am we move over to ambush this guy after sunset. So, um, I uh, I have them rest, and uh, once they get up, uh, I ask, uh, what are the intended positions for the time being? Gent says, I think, uh, keep an eye out for the guard. And I say, right, but who here is doing what? Who is where doing what? And Gent says, well, who do we want blackmailing the guy? And I say, is, I suppose it's worth mentioning that technically Connor has the best shot with the militia uniform because he's half orc. So they vote for him. And uh, 
Alex says, yeah, I think Connor could have some backup in case things go wrong, but he's probably the best choice. Maybe we could get him to pull up a hood or something so that's not super obvious. I say, so is the plan for Connor to go to his vantage point watching the hill and wait for the guard to show up, then approach him in uniform? Also, where are Jen and Hex while this is happening slash what are they doing? And Chantel says, I am thinking maybe Gent will spend some time while waiting, uh, making some explosive distractions together. And Hex can use his cloak of the bat to turn into a bat and just be nearby but inconspicuous. And, uh, Hex has the shade of the forest is enough to turn into a bat by day in the dim light. I say it'll be some time before the guard returns to the hill. Gent, any ideas what you're concocting bomb-wise? Ideas include glitter mine plus acid mine plus smoke grenade equals caustic smoke bomb grenade. Uh, caustic smoke bomb mine. And uh, Gent says, yeah, that'd definitely work. I say this would basically be a bomb that forces a con constitution save versus acid damage and blindness. And uh, uh, Alex referred to these as the old Jackson Pollock grenades. Um... This is actually also just like uh, the way that we came uh, came to the idea of making this is like Gent had glitter mines that they had made. They had acid mines they had made. The, they only had one of those. And then they had a smoke grenade. And I was sort of like, all right, if you mix these inventory items together, what does it make? And uh, it makes a caustic glitter mine. Getting pretty slapstick with the uh, the demolitions this time around. You got your taxidermy bunny bombs and your splattery glitter mines. Yeah. When do we get one that's just um, like a pie to the face? Uh, Hex just hides out of camp, out, uh, out of the out of sight from the camp in his bat form, using his cloak of the bat. Connor continues to watch the hill, but the, bar the guard does not present himself. Gent successfully crafts a new explosive, and Hex uses up his bat form. There doesn't seem to be a lot of activity from the camp. It should be said that there was a limited amount of time on he could turn into a bat, so he turns into a bat, but then just stops being a bat. I say, there doesn't seem to be a lot of activity from the camp, but you don't really have eyes on the inside. Would we like to fast forward to a specific point, i.e. when the guard shows up on the hill again, or try to do something else in the meantime? And uh, they choose to fast forward. So Connor makes sure that his gas masks and trioptics are down, covering as much of his face as possible. I say the day is uneventful, allowing you guys to effectively rest for the majority of it, albeit with some alertness required. Shortly after nightfall, the guard appears walking up the hill from a tiny gap in the camp's walled per perimeter. Connor is in position with Hex nearby, and uh, Jen is hanging back by the rest area. The guard reaches the top of the hill, glancing over his shoulder repeatedly on his way, fidgeting when he halts atop it. And Connor waits for him to start to use, and then creeps up as close as possible in his guard uniform, and rolls a 21 for stealth, unheard of for Connor. Connor gets right up behind the hapless addict. Connor can actually make a quick perception check with advantage and make gets a 19. Connor may not know much about insomnium or how much an addict consumes, but it certainly appears that the guard's supply is dwindling. You can try and make a medicine check or something similar to know more about the topic in general. He rolls a uh, 14 for medicine, and I say it definitely seems like he's running low. And whatever the case, Connor has the drop on him. 
Connor uh, readies an action to cast hold person if the guy tries to book it. Then he puts on his most menacing but miss most human voice and says, Naughty, naughty, what do we have here? The guard whips around and jumps back a pace, almost falling on his ass. (laughs) Holy hells, fuck, he explains in a hushed voice. And Connor must roll deception and gets a nine and says, oof. And the guard squints him a bit, but he's too shocked to say anything. And Connor says, uh, easy there, no need to panic. Looks like you're running a little low there, partner. Have you ever been to an insomnia mine? <laughs> Connor look, lets the words hang for a moment, and the guard sniffs loudly, then tries to wipe some of the stuff from his nose. No matter. Simply put, I could supply you some more, given a little time, and provided you do me a little favor. Uh-oh. And, uh, I had Connor <laughs> roll deception again with advantage this time. And he says, I think you'll find my prices most reasonable, sinister chuckle. And gets a 19 on his uh, deception with advantage. Then I have him roll persuasion with advantage, and he gets a 25. And the guard, bewildered, asks, who are you? And he says, why, a salesman, of course, straight from the source. And Connor uses thaumaturgy to make his eyes flash red. And the guard (laughs) makes a comical gulp swallowing sound. And he says... But why look a gift horse in the mouth, partner? Help me out, and we could enjoy a lovely bit of business together. And the guard stammers, sure, what, what do you need? And he says, all I need are a couple of deliveries done. Simple things. Tomorrow, I must ask that you drop off this battle at the mess tent. Connor holds out the bottle wrapped in the note. And I say, mess tent or kitchen specifically? And uh, he says, kitchen, sorry. My friend Chu will know what to do with it. Big creepy wink. And the other thing, this is quite embarrassing, is my friend Dexter forgot his stuffy at home. (laughs) I brought it here, but I've had to turn it off. Could you be a deer and drop it off with him tomorrow night? Just flick the switch on the bottom and his eyes will light up. His eyes flash red again. (laughs) And uh, the guard says, thinking quickly, uh, I don't have the authority to enter the Lord's tent, but, but you does. And I have him roll persuasion with advantage again. And he gets a 21 and he says, oh, of course, I shouldn't have to tell you, but I would really hope you'd keep all this a little secret for me, you know, so that I wouldn't need to go telling anyone your secrets, understood? And the uh, guard swallows again and nods. And he says, Chu may deliver it for you then, but if you'd like more of that devil dust, you'd better make sure he delivers it. And he nods rapidly. Connor casts etherealness and falls into the floor, and he says, I needed a cool exit. I forgot to plan a cool exit. And uh, Sean tells us, it was cool for Connor. And I say, the guard stands there shaking in his boots for a minute, then glances around for a few moments, then sits down to finish indulging in his habit. After finishing, he quickly moves to return to the camp. And uh, Alex clarifies that he did hand him the the rabbit first, though, obviously. And I say, shall we do another fast forward? And if so, till when? And uh, Alex says, all right, well, at this point, we need to try and observe Dexter and get him when he's vulnerable, if possible. We got to try and find those purple crystals. Jen says, I think it may call for more sneaking than me. And now more, more sneaking, sneaking more than me in. I don't know what they were trying to say. (laughs) Uh, All right. Hex will come with. I don't know if Connor will be quiet enough, though, even with his boots of elven kind. And Chantel says, agreed. Maybe we should put him in position with a sniper cool, a st- cool sniper position. He says, yeah, set up with the big gun. Then we go in and we, and Alex says, 
Before we leave to head in, Connor's going to hit Hex with freedom of movement. Well, we got to get close to Dio's tent, preferably close enough to see inside, but obviously we can't be seen at all. Connor will be I say Connor will be able to turn the attic's hiding spot into a decent sniper's nest, given that it was chosen for its safety from the camp's visibility. And uh, <laughs> Alex says, holy shit, there's two invisibility potions in my bag of holding and bug repellent. <laughs> <laughs> gent can theoretically i say gent can theoretically slip into the main tent through the entrance using invisibility however hex will have more difficulty either way if they want to go straight for the tent they'd be they'd be best off trying to slip in through the back of the camp from there the heavy canvas of the main tent could be cut through and uh with the uh invisibility potions pointed out i say oh hex may have a better shot than i thought and they say, okay, Hex and Jen can make for the back of the big tent and cut our way in. No flaming swords this time, though. And Gent uh, says, we should also plan on how to capture Dex. We got manacles, right? And I say, you've got manacles, rope of entanglement, iron bands of binding, a portable hole. Depending how risky you want to be about it. They say, okay, we're well equipped then. And uh, Hex says... A portable hole might actually work super well because that way we can just fold it up and walk back out. Less chance of being caught on the way out. Gent gets behind him, throws him, throws it down. Hex shoves him in. Gent's like, exactly. Alex says, I'm looking at the portable hole rules, though. I think we may have to clonk him first. And I say, better still if you stack restraints, like hitting him with the rope of entangling and then doing it. He says, oh, yeah, we throw the rope at him and then tell it to go nuts, and then we push him into the portable hole. That'll work. Okay, so let's creep up as close as possible. Then Hex will drink the potion. And I say, uh, assuming the next move is Jen and Hex slipping through the back of the camp, both need to make stealth checks with advantage. Hex gets a 31 and Jen gets a 28. And I say, you both slip through the perimeter easily using a structural weakness that the attic probably also exploits in his little escapes. The guard patrols along the stone, stone arches are nowhere near when you sil silently pass into the camp. You can both hit the back of the main tent directly. It's not far ahead. Or you may choose to go around and try to slip by the two, three guards at the main entryway. And they, uh, <laughs> Chantel says, easy to hit the back. And Alex says, something, something jokes. Yes, let's do that. They have them <laughs> give a flat perception roll. Alex gets a 13. Chantel gets a, an 18. They say, did you guys effectively wait till midnight for this? And they say, yes. I say, gent, you're quiet snoring on the other side of the tent from where you guys are. To cut through the tent, make an attack with slashing weapon with advantage. I think slashing is more of a hex thing as gent's weapon profiles are mostly piercing. They say, yeah, that's what I was going to suggest. Okay, one sec. And uh, hex says, unnatural 20 with the scimitar. Uh, scimitar and i say uh, roll that slashing damage he gets 13 slashing damage i say you have the option to either cut an incision just large enough for you and gent to slip through one at a time or you could effectively cut a 10 foot hole in the side of the tent for you guys they go for just the slit um actually alex says just gonna go for the slit and Chantel says ick and I say, all right, who steps or peeks through first? And Jen says, me, I'm small. And uh, they just peek through. I get them to do stealth with advantage. Hex gets a 17. Uh, Chantel gets a 29 and then rolls an 18 for perception. 
The room on the other side of the heavy canvas is warm and well relatively well lit, light provided by a brazier nearby. Gazing in, Gent can hardly believe your luck. A large chest with a stout lock sits at the foot of a luxurious bed, and in that bed sleeps none other than Lord Dio. A suit of well-kept plate armor is on a rack nearby, and next to that sits a small table with a set of folded clothes prepared for the next day. A broadsword is sheathed and leans against the small table. The floor is soft, covered in furs and carpets. So they cut into the tent, and lo and behold, they've cut right into the area with their assassination target sleeping in it. Um, Gent says, uh, is anyone else in the tent? And I say, the tent is quite large and split into multiple sections. This section is Lord Dio's private bedroom, effectively. There's an opening to another area from which light emanates, but nobody else in this section. And so Gent steps in quietly, and I say, there are also wooden support beams serving as pillars at various points in the tent. Lord Dio snores quietly, completely unarmored and unarmed in his bed. And uh, Gent says, I will... I think I will move to slit his throat. Oh. Or, and Hex peeks in, and she says, or I will work on his lockbox while Hex does his massacre thing. I will leave... I will charade the choice to Hex. And uh, Hex makes a small stabbing motion, then points to his pistols, then points to his fingers... points his fingers to his lips. Hex will then try to signal time in a word... Without wa <laughs> Hex will then try to signal time in a world without watches. Uh, Jen has a good laugh at that. He says, maybe I, he imitates a clock face or something with his fingers, then shakes his head. He pulls his head back out of the room. I bet they have watches in Goblin Town, at least. Jen stealths over to the lockbox and checks it for traps. And I say, just to establish, attacks against Dio while he's sleeping have dis have advantage and melee and melee auto crit on a hit. Uh, and I have Gent roll perception to check the lockbox for traps. They get a, a 24. And uh, uh, Jet Alex points out what he was trying to signal is basically they got to figure out what who the people here who deal was dealing with before they kill him so that's what he's doing with the time signal he's, he's trying to say like don't kill yet like not not now later click tick 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 etc and i have uh gent rolls uh thieves tools and they get uh 26 and i say there is a trap on this lock it's designed to hit you with a poison needle if you picked it which you easily could. In order to avoid it, you'll need to use a key instead of picking the lock. And Jen says, hmm, okay, I'll move toward Dio again in his bed. Does he have a, have a key around his neck that I can see? And I say, no, he's not dressed. If he had a necklace, though, you imagined it'd be on the table with his clothes. And uh, he says, huh, do I kill the guy now? I feel a bit conflicted as he is sleeping. And I say, I believe Hex has been trying to instruct you to hold off. I could see Jen doing it despite Hex's signals, but if they're conflicted, then I don't think they'd go through with it. And they're like, yeah. And I say, like, maybe Jen could ignore one thing or the other, but both seems like a bit much. And I say, okay. I go and check Dio's clothes for a key, and uh, Alex says, honestly, I'm 50-50 on it too, but Hex isn't going to take the lead on that one. And I say, bingo, next to his folded clothing by the leaning sheathed broadsword, you find a small golden necklace with a key on it. Jenk grabs the key and goes to unlock the box. And I say, for what it's worth, 
the one who gave you the primary objective, Francesca, uh, specifically said she would advise killing him if you get the chance, even if it costs you finding out who he's meeting with. But she left it up to you. And Hex uh, decides to move along the outside of the tent from the slit and uh, reach his arm under the tent walls, uh, or try. I say there are big bundles of thick canvas spread at the bottom, so he's not able to. Uh, inside the chest, Gent finds 600 gold, and uh, they look for hidden compartments. I have them roll investigate with advantage. They get a 23, but unfortunately, they don't find anything else. Just It's just a chest containing 600 gold. Um, Gent says, the bomb I made, how is it triggered? And I say, your choice. You can either set it like a mine to go off when triggered, or you can put it on a timed fuse. The, the fuse is maximum a minute. They say, okay. I'm going to place the bomb in the lockbox, not a fuse, like a mine. And I say, right, do you want to set it to go off when the chest is open next? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, all right, do you remove the 600 gold first? They say, yes, leave one gold. I say, gents, gold is now uh, 20,120 gold. Oh, leave one gold? Okay, 20,119 <laughs> gold. So the trap is set. <laughs> Jen says, before I leave the tent, I would like to peek into the other section. I say, Hex is invisible, moving, alo moving along outside of the tent. And uh, Hex goes over and makes another careful incision in the back of the tent about one room over, this time just big enough to look through. Uh, and I say, Jen and Hex could probably coordinate to make sure the slit accesses the other section. Uh, also, I just realized you guys were too invisible to do charades which is something that's happened with them before. Oh, yeah, that old problem. <laughs> they couldn't even see each other. Alex is like, oh, shit, does Jen have blind sense? And I, or, or Alex says, oh, shit, and I say, well, I guess Hex has his robe for it, his robe of eyes. And he says, does Jen have blind sense? And I say, 10 feet, I don't know about that. Man, blind charades, echolocating some gesticulations. <laughs> and I say, but yeah, I'd say we can combine these two actions. Gent peeks the next section of the tent, then they can make sure Hex puts the inc the next incision in the right spot. Um, Gent, the opening to the next section from D Dio's bedroom effectively opens to a small corridor on the opposite side of which is the opening to another room of about the size about this of about the same size. On one end of the corridor is a dead end, and on the other appears to be the largest section of the tent, which opens up a fair bit. Two small braziers flank the point where the corridor opens to the larger area, and the larger area evidently contains at least one more, uh, at least one more brazier based on the flickering that can be seen and heard from within. And uh, I say, um, I have general perception with advantage. They get a twenty-seven with a nat twenty. And I say the room across from Dio's is similarly lavish, and it's uh, oh. Uh, Gent goes to peek into the room across from Dio's. And I say, uh, the room across from Dio's is similarly lavish in its many rugs and furs and also features a small table with clothing and a large bed, though no chest. Under a number of furs, an unfamiliar human male sleeps in the bed. And Gent rummages through his clothes. I say, fine clothes as is to, to be expected of these aristocrats. Um... And uh, meanwhile, Hex has made their slit in the canvas wall of the tent. 
and uh, looking in, uh, cut, slicing into this room, looking in, they see this unfamiliar dude in a nice bed with nice clothes prepared for the next day. Hex creeps into the tent, moves down the hall to just before the braziers, and takes a peek into the main area. I say, you, you see that the center of the main area is dominated by a brazier stacked with burning logs. Past it, you can see the open entryway with the three guards standing outside, smoke from the braziers escaping freely from the top of the flap. Tables and high-backed wooden chairs are set up on either side of the brazier. One of the long tables is bare, save for a large map of Agalok. The opposite table is covered in documents along with quills and seals and features an identical map on which have been placed markers and pins. At the busier table, Dexter sits speaking to a younger man that is unfamiliar to them, uh, as far as I know. The younger man wears leather armor and appears to be some sort of scout captain. Hex comes back into the room with Gent and begins doing silly charades. He tries to sign Dexter, which I'm assuming is like a monocle or something, or maybe a mimed silly hat. I say, the two men seem tired, but they are speaking into the night about what appear to be some important matters. Gent uh, moves on after rummaging through the clothes and moves to the main room unaware of Hex. And uh, Hex follows after Gent, and once they're far enough from the sleeping people, he whispers, let's just kill, let's just kill Dio and grab this mug. And I say, in the main area, there's also what appears to be a fine elven shortbow with an etching written in elven. The table features small pouches and stray coins in addition to the documents and whatnot. Also on the table, you can spot some purple gemstone. And Gent says, ooh, I want things. Am I invisible? And say, oh, there would actually be one of the militiamen dozing at one of his at one of the chairs at the table. But yes, Gent is invisible. Gent says, okay, not sure how much further I can go tonight, but my first two wants is to see what Dex is saying and to take a peek at the documents. And I say, all right, we're definitely breaking soon. Uh, Gent rolls a 26 stealth with advantage. Dex addresses the scout as Ray, um, who straightens up a bit while they are speaking. Though they're both obviously tired, you can tell that Ray has the trained eye of a scout and is not one to let his guard down. Moving carefully to the table, Jen is startled briefly when the militiaman wakes and sta stands up from his seat, but he merely moves to the end of the table and pours himself a glass of water. I'm still not sure there's anything to worry about, really, Dexter says. They haven't been doing much more than test the waters, so to speak. I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say we're at war. And Ray leans back. So what do we tell them? We tell them everything's fine. They'll certainly be suspicious. Otherwise, why the hell would we call for their aid? And Dexter replies, maybe we can alter the sort of aid we ask for. And at a glance, I say, Gent, I tell Gent, the documents on the table are related to treaties between the people of Agalok and the Nightside Eclipse. It appears that Lord Dio and his people wish to renew, reinforce, or renegotiate these treaties. It's hard to say in what way without flipping through the documents. Then I have Gent roll investigate with advantage for our last roll of the night. They get a 24, and I say... You can at least determine from these opening statements that the meeting will be between a number of named delegates from the Mantle and a delegation from the Nightside Eclipse. The, na the names of the human delegates from the Mantle are Lord Dio, Dexter, Ray, and Oak. Since, since Oak is the odd man out thus far, you suspect that's the stranger in the bed sitting the, in, in the bed across from Dio's room.
And uh, Chantel said Professor Oak, which is a reference to Pokemon. And I said, and that's where you'll break. Uh, given you know the meeting is with a Nightside Eclipse delegation, I'll leave it to you whether that's enough info or whether or even someone. Ugh, sorry. And I, as we broke, I told them, given that they knew that the meeting was with a Nightside Eclipse delegation, I left it to you to them whether that's enough info, or even someone uh, wanted to give Dio the chance to meet with and decide how to proceed with their objectives accordingly. Does what I said just make sense? Does what I just said make sense? I'm I'm having trouble speaking. Yeah. <laughs> well, does what I what you just said now, while I understand it, uh, your your phrasing seemed a little off. Yeah. You okay? I don't know. It's this it's this transcript. It's reading back. It gets all jumbled. Hmm. On me. Was anybody using uh, uh, voice to text? Not me. Not I me. Have, not me. <laughs> um. But uh, I would say. The last, the last notes we ended on were basically, do they kill Dio before he meets with the Nightside Eclipse delegation? Do they let him meet with the Nightside Eclipse delegation? And of course, they have to remember to grab their gem their gemstone samples on the way out. And uh, Hex finished with saying, "I say we murder Dio, blinding acid grenade the rest, stuff Dexter in a bag, and beat feet." Just toss them all in there. If they suffocate, Connor can bring them back. And then it was Chantel's birthday. But that was it for that session. Man, wait, Chantel's birthday. I seem to remember you talking about that on the podcast way back when. And I know we've we've caught up with when we started recording the, the, the podcast and the games you were playing then. Do you have the date on uh, what this session... When the session took place? I think you mentioned it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I definitely... Uh, I said happy birthday, Chantel, on um, the 10th of November 2022. Uh, and I think we played on, what, the 9th, I said? Somewhere in November. It's catching up with us, November. Tom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we're only... It it was only three years ago, but they are. It's true. Jeez. Weird times. Weird. Closer to the present day in in Coyote's ages. So that was uh you know they get into position they're ready to perform their assassination they're at the tent. They've uh, done some scheming. And uh, we've talked about Nobilis. Anything else for this episode, McGill? I think that's it, Tom. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us or see when we post new episodes, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Uh, or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Um Anything else? Not me. Uh, uh, wait, you don't level up. Uh, get them miracle points. Play your character. Get them miracle points. Yeah, play your character and get them miracle points. That's that's good. I like that. 
and get ready to head through the gates, perhaps. And at some point soon, we got to do Palladium again. Oh, yeah, we got to go back to Palladium. Gotta go back to Palladium. Take care, everybody.